Now, we are in Ephesians. We have been in Ephesians uh, for quite some time. It is a six-chapter book, and we are finally in the sixth chapter. We have arrived at the last chapter of this book. Uh, just as a reminder, when Paul wrote it to the people in Ephesus, he didn't put chapter breaks in. It was just a letter. He was just writing it to people who lived in Ephesus. Specifically, he was writing it to the church in Ephesus. And he has said a great deal in this book already in five chapters. Uh, the book of Ephesians starts off in the first three chapters, which we studied last year. Uh, and, and it reminds us who God is and who we are because of what God has done for us and who Jesus is and how our hope is for salvation and life is in the name and the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. What does that mean about our identity because of who Jesus is? And then this year we've been studying the second half of the book of Ephesians. And as you you get into Ephesians 4, you begin to see what it looks like for us to live as people of God. And what does it look like for us to be the church? And that's been really important for us this year because our focus that God has given us for this year, 2023, has been wrapped around this word assemble. As we say that this year we are building the church together, that we cannot build on our own. We need each other. And so it's been important for us to study what it looks like to build the kind of church that God desires for us to build. Uh, chapter 5 has been focusing uh, on, on relationships and, and how we do community. And ultimately, even uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've been saying that Jesus uh, and, and through Paul, God invites us to live in this community that the phrase I've been saying over and over again the last couple of weeks is that God is inviting us not just to live in the light, but what that looks like is to partner with God and partner with one another to build life-giving, God-honoring, mutually submitted communities of spirit-filled believers. Now, there's a lot there to unpack, and that's not the point of my message today. We're going to get into uh, what Paul is talking about. Uh, but as he's talking about what it would look like for us to live in the light, and, and we respond by saying we want to build communities of mutually submitted, spirit-filled believers. Last week, we looked at Paul's example of those kinds of communities as he talked about the metaphor of marriage. And we, we tackled uh, the, the sensitive subject of authority and submission, and, and we wrestled with not what the world says about authority and submission in the context of marriage, but what does God actually say about these things? Not what we have turned it into, but what does the Bible actually say about the role of husbands and wives? And more than that, how does the marriage picture point us to the church picture, and how does that point us to God? We're going to do something similar today as we look at another uh, metaphor, another set of images that Paul gives to us as we get into the first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 6. Paul goes on, so he's talked about marriage. Now he's going to talk about a couple of other different kinds of relationships. And in fact, he's going to give us, uh, he's going to highlight four distinct groupings or, or categories of people that are going to need to, uh, to live a certain way. And we, each of these can give us some practical advice, and they can also point us to what it looks like to be a part of the church. So with that in mind, let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And this is out of the CSB translation. Your translation, if it's not that one, is probably good uh, as well. But if you don't have a Bible with you today or you didn't find it on your phone, uh, it'll be there on the screen for you as well. Here's what Paul says to us. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat yourselves, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with 
him. Now, Paul address, addresses four specific groups in this nine-verse passage of Scripture. He talks about children, fathers, slaves, and masters. We're going to wrestle with that word that's bothering you in that list in just a few minutes. Uh, just hang tight with me. Uh, my goal is I'm going to try to bring some clarity to what each of these groups actually is built up by. Like, who are the people in each of these groups? And then I think each of these groups will have, or what Paul says to each of them, has something to teach us as we live in the light in Jesus. And we're going to do that by looking at this passage from three different angles. We're going to look at this from the angle of the family. We're going to look at this passage from the angle of the workplace. And then we're going to look at this passage from the angle of the church. So the family, the workplace, and the church. Those are the three lenses or angles we're going to approach this scripture. And so we're going to begin with the challenge that Paul has to the family. Now, in the family lens, we see that Paul has spoken, and specifically in verses 1 through 4, Paul has spoken to children and fathers. All right. Now, let's begin with what he says to children. He says, Obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and you may have long life in the land. Now, I would just like to say, as a dad, I love the way that Paul begins this uh, by, by actually answering the question that he knows the kid in the room is going to ask. If, if you've ever been around a child, you know that when you tell a kid to do something, they have one question, and it is? And Paul says, because it's right. This is a great dad answer, by the way. And if you're wondering, like, sometimes it actually is okay to go, because I said so. Right? This is Paul's way of saying that, but he's actually, uh, he's, he's actually really pointing to something more profound than just, obey because I said so. There's something beautiful here. I just love the fact that Paul anticipates the question in the room. He's writing a letter. He knows he's not going to be there in the room when they read it, and some kid is going to be like, Why? Because it's right. And the kid's going to go, oh, okay. All right. I've heard you, Paul. I'll just be quiet now. I'll save my other questions for later. I've got a billion of them. But I, I love that Paul says this. He says, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. And then immediately he says, and honor. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Now, I love that Paul doesn't just say, do what I told you to do, or do what your dad said, or do what your mom instructs you to do, just because it's right, period. Now let's move on to the next group. He digs in even deeper. He says, it's not just about obedience, is it? It's a matter of your heart. Honor them as well, right? Honor them. Not simply doing what you're told, but giving respect and then Paul immediately ties this in to something that I think he was probably taught by his own parents and his own rabbi and church leaders as he was a young boy. He, he uses this phrase, it's the first commandment with a promise. Now, you, if you're a student of the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, then you probably already noticed this, that Paul is quoting the fifth of the Ten Commandments. In fact, I'll read it to you in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. It says, honor your father and mother. This is commandment number five of the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments that's like, don't do murders? This one comes before that. Okay, so honor your father and mother. This is in Exodus chapter 20. So that you may have long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So Paul is immediately tying this promise back to this old ancient promise for God. This one has a promise attached to it, guys. And the, the fruit of obeying and honoring your parents is a long life in the land that God has given you. Now, just for clarity, in the old covenant, the land that God is giving you is the promised land. It's like a physical place. But under the new covenant, we actually understand that there's a promised land for us as well. And it's not a physical place. It's, it's not a place that you're going to drive to right now like a physical place. It's a place that you're going to be present with God in eternity if you place your faith in Christ. The promised land is eternal life in heaven with God. Right? So it's not like the promised land is like, you know, Ventura at the beach where the weather is always within 20 degrees. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a spiritual reality, a place where you, a spiritual land where you get to dwell with God forever. 
So Paul, Paul draws on this Old Testament or Old Covenant promise so that he can tell children obedience and honor is the way of living for everyone who wants to inherit the eternal promise of life with God. So children, live like that. So for the, the children that are in the room right now or listening to this ever in the future, obey your parents, honor them, because it comes with a promise that your life would be long and good. And, and I love, by the way, that if we put that in the right context, that it's not just a promise that says you'll live many years here on the earth. It's a promise that you will live forever with God. It's the best promise you could ever get, right? That it will be well with you and you'll live long in the promised land. What's the promised land? The presence of God forever, heaven, eternal life with God. That's the real promise. He's pointing them to this metaphor of submission so that their young lives can learn what it looks like to be a picture of, what it, of, of the Christian life, submitting to our heavenly Father. So even our children are invited to be a vital part of the image of the church as the body of Christ submitting to the Father. And by the way, this, this is why Paul doesn't just stop at obey because I said so. Right? There, is, there is that moment where you go, because I told you to clean your room, that's why. Right? But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes to the deeper truth, which is obedience and honor brings the fruit of life. So children are to obey their parents. But notice another little subtlety in the way that Paul wrote this. He said, obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord. Which immediately puts the expectation on the parents. And since... Most of you in this room aren't minor children. Let's move quickly on to the thing that Paul says to parents. Okay, you ready? Just for the record, uh, historically, the reason Paul says fathers here uh, is because the father is the head of the household. We wrestled with that a lot when we were talking about the kingdom version of submission and authority last week. Uh, but I, I just want you to understand uh, that when Paul says father, he was using a cultural expression of the, the father is the head of the household spiritually and with the authority that God has given. And we affirm that and we agree with that. But also that doesn't mean that mothers don't have to listen up as well. What he's doing here is he's saying the person who sets the tone for the spiritual dynamic in the household is the father. So dads, as you do this, your wives will be inspired to partner with you. Notice the language there. Not as you lead your family this way, make sure your wives partner with you in this. Right? We, we dealt with this last week. It's, it's not you tell your wives what to do or you tell the mother of your children what to do. She will be inspired to partner with you if you set the tone in your house like this. Right? So he's saying fathers because he knows he's going to get the moms anyway. And by the way, dads, don't we know, especially if you've been married to a, a, a powerful woman like the one I've been married to for almost 20 years, like I have, I've had to hear this. What Paul says as a father, Sharon's actually naturally just better at this kind of stuff than I am. I, I think that I think that my I married a woman who just is like naturally more like Jesus than I am. And some of you guys in the room, you could probably relate. Like your wife is probably just more like Jesus than you are. That's another reason I think that Paul says fathers. Because Paul just gets it. He's like, hey, you bonehead, listen up. Your wife already figured this out. Right? Okay, so let's just, let's just be honest with ourselves here. So here's, here's what Paul says. says. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Now, I think first and foremost, before we get into any of this, I think it's important to pause here and just say this. If you read the word father in the Bible, and, and you immediately in reading Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 said, I wish my dad had read this. Isn't it such a sweet gift to know that God sees you? If your father wasn't this, God's response to that is to say, I wish that he was. My intention for you was not to have a father who stirred up anger in you. My intention for you was not to have an abusive or an absentee father or a dad who didn't measure up to the standard that I set for him as a father. I wish that he had. 
And so if you're a child of a father who, or a mother who was not a, a healthy relationship for you, the first thing you hear today is God says, I see you in that relationship. And I wish that that wasn't the case. That wasn't actually my plan for you. So having heard God say that to those of us who need to hear it, we can then hear what God says is the standard. Look, he essentially is telling fathers and mothers, don't give your children reason to be angry. Instead, train and instruct them to follow God, not your bad mood. Now, I know when I first became a dad, it was, Hannah was just a few years old when it suddenly dawned on me that my instinctual reaction to her not perfectly obeying me every single time I said anything was frustration. And I confess to you, my friends and my church family, that there were moments in the early years of being a father that Hannah was not perfect. And in her lack of being perfect, I chose to react to her in anger and had been guilty in moments as a father in the early years of, be, of, my fa- of being a dad, of yelling at my little girl. And I remember the day that I did it. And all she had done was, I mean, I, honestly, I can't even remember. I don't even remember what she did, but I remember what I did. I remember yelling her name and immediately feeling like the Holy Spirit said, what are you doing? There is something innately in the brokenness of a parent who isn't able to control their emotions, who hasn't submitted their feelings to God yet. That we are quick to stir up anger in our children. And the way we do that, the first way we do that, is we demonstrate anger to our children. Right? And I've been guilty of that. And I'm so thankful for the ways that God has healed and delivered me of the places that were broken in my heart. But I, I know what it feels like to be on that side of it, to he, need to hear God say this to me as a father. And I'm thankful that he's helped me to grow. Other ways that we stir up anger in our children is we place unreasonable expectations on them. Of course, we stir up anger in our children through abuse, both physical and verbal abuse. Uh, we stir up anger in our children by neglect. We can be wildly physically present, but neglect or withhold love or kindness, that's, that's a way that we can stir up uh, anger in our children. We can be distant or even absent physically. We can model anger without repentance, or we can just refuse to apologize when we do something wrong. All of these are things or examples of things that would stir up anger in our children. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't live that way. Paul would say, parents, be a present and positive influence in the lives of your children. Instead of following your own emotions, follow God and model how he would respond to a moment. Now, I, I understand, because I've had to put the work in for this, I understand that that takes like 10 times longer than just yelling at your kid. But the fruit of that is a million times better. Because every single time I would react to my child or my daughters in anger, I model for them, this is the way you should live. When things don't go your way, get angry about it. And if they really don't go your way, yell at the person in front of you. And I would model that for my kids. And I'm so thankful that God helped me figure that out when my girls were young enough that I've asked them, they don't even remember I ever did it. God is so gracious to my family. And he can be to your family too, if you find yourself right now feeling convicted or highlighted or pointed at. And I would just like to iterate very clearly, that's not my intention, but if God is saying something to you today, please allow him to. Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today is the perfect day to turn that around if that's the kind of father or parent that you have been. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, by the way, he's already said this to the church, let all bitterness, anger, or wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. You know what I love about that is that that is earlier in this letter. So the parents are going, uh, don't stir up your child to anger, and they're remembering, oh, yeah, he did just tell us to get rid of all that stuff, didn't he? Not just in me, but also I can't put that onto my kids, 
right? Parents are to stir up love, forgiveness, grace, to be quick to forgive and quick to ask for forgiveness when we have wronged our children. And yes, parents, it is not only possible but common that we wrong our children. And it would be good if it is just as common that we apologize to them. So, Paul says, bring up our children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Training and instruction, by the way, don't mean what I used to think that they meant, which was lecture and correct. It means something long-term. It means discipline or make a disciple of. It means counsel, meaning sit down and talk, give wisdom, ask good questions, point and direct over the course of a lifetime a child to Christ. These words imply a culture of grace-filled modeling in a household that honors God. This takes time, and it takes a lot of conversation. Here's the reality, is that our children will follow our example wherever we lead them, right? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, we always hang our hats on this like a prophetic promise for our kids no matter what. We want to chant this, and I think that at a certain level we should, but we should also understand that Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 is just as much a warning as it is a promise. And it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. When you parent your children with anger, you are teaching them this is the way you should go. And when he is older... He will not depart from it. When you teach your children with the peace of the Lord, you are training your children, this is the way he should go. And when he is older, he will not depart from it. This is a promise just as much as it is a warning. And so, bring up your children, parents, in the training and instruction of the Lord. And if you don't have kids... Or you don't have young kids. Your kids have grown up. We've got a lot of young kids in this church. They just ditched us. They were, they, they, you, you just prayed for them, right? This is, this is not an organization. This actually is designed to be a family. And I'm thankful that Sharon and I haven't raised Hannah and Selah just on our own. And there's a lot of people in this church who have lovingly when needed, guided or corrected them towards Christ and just showered them with grace and love. Some of you are in this room and thank you for the way you've helped us raise our daughters. And hopefully we have helped you raise your children as well. And so if you don't have young kids in the house right now and you're going, well, this, none of this applies to me. That was like a waste of like a whole third of a sermon because it just doesn't apply. No, no, no. There's plenty of people who need your help doing this in this church. It really does take a village. Let's do that kind of living together. Amen? Amen. And so now we can say, as we look at the family, we can also look at this passage from the other lens that Paul offers to us right on the surface, which is the workplace. And let me, before we get into the workplace, give you this disclaimer, because when we read the word slave here, this is where Paul says slaves and masters. When we read the word slave here, we really, really want this to be a mistranslation. We really, really, really want this to, to we want to be able to, say, to stand up and go, Paul actually meant to write the word employee and it's a typo. Uh, but it's not. It's not a typo, and it's not a mistranslation. It actually is the word slave here, and Paul was actually writing to a cultural reality of his day. Now, this word is often uh, translated bond servant, and the attempt there is kind of in the same vein. We translate it the word, to the word bond servant to kind of lessen the, the, the punch of the feeling of the word slave, and I think that that's moving in the right direction towards helping to understand, uh, but we have to understand that when Paul used the word word slave, he meant the word slave. Furthermore, though, we do have to understand that when Paul used the word slave, he didn't mean the same thing you mean when you use the word slave when you were studying American history. So slavery was a cultural reality in the, in the Roman world, which covered Ephesus, the people that Paul was writing to. But it is not the same kind of slavery as the chattel slavery that we studied about and thankfully have abolished uh, in this country and hopefully in the entire world. There are some distinct differences. Roman slaves did have, just like chattel slavery, Roman slaves had no social rights. However, Roman slavery uh, was not the same. 
uh, in every respect. Chattel slavery was strict. Chattel slavery, by the way, is the phrase that for the what I, I don't mean. I, I don't want to just be negative and pejorative and 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 the American history slavery you studied is is named chattel slavery. That's that's what we're talking about. Okay, Roman slavery. Uh, were people owning other people as well. We're, we're going to come around to a value judgment on all of this. I just want to make sure that we're clear. Chattel slavery was strictly race-based. Uh, it was the abduction of people from their communities, from their, from their homes. It was oppression of generations of particularly black, African, and African-American-born people who had no rights, uh, and, and it is terrible and horrible. Roman slavery, just as bad but different. And I want you to understand, we're not going to soften the blow here. Okay, and we're going to come around to a value judgment in just a second. Roman slaves were not race-based, but class-based. This was not specific to a minority race. In fact, historically, we can understand that wealthy people of any racial background owned slaves of any other racial group, including their own. In fact, uh, this would include Romans owning fellow Romans. Um, In some contexts, we can find that Jewish people had slaves. In fact, also, in Paul's time, it is possible that up to one-third of Roman citizens were themselves slaves. Additionally, Roman slaves had the opportunity to gain their freedom, There did tend to be uh, more of a relational dynamic between slaves and their masters, uh, which led toward, if if your master was kind and generous, which led towards uh, something that might resemble a, a welcoming into the family. Some slaves actually chose to be, and this is where we get the phrase, bond servants. They chose to bind themselves to their master for life, to say, I I enjoy being a part of this family. I, I want to continue to serve in this family um, for life. And, and that was often in that day demonstrated by the, the master then piercing the ear of the slave. And then that earring would be a marker that you are a part of this house. Uh, you can probably think of that version of, of being a bond servant. The closest thing to like if there was a generation of, of, of butlers all serving the same family right? This, this was kind of what that turned into. It was a class-based system. Uh, you, if you've ever seen Downton Abbey. I haven't, but I've, my wife has told me about it. And so, but, so you understand how that class-based, so that kind of the upstairs, downstairs sort of thing, that would be the bond servant expression. Certainly, certainly there were grotesque and horrible and inhumane expressions of slavery in Roman slavery, just like the Western perspective that we have of slavery as we understand and hear that word. Uh, we just kind of cringe at the idea uh, because of what it was across the board in that case. Now, here's, here's what we want to be clear on. Neither of these kinds of slavery uh, it, it, that Paul is addressing is he saying, Great. Thumbs up to that. This is just a beautiful, awesome expression of humanity. We just super love that. In fact, uh, early church fathers immediately in the birth of the New Testament church began to work to subvert the system and culture of slavery. And it was the Christian church that had a significant, and throughout history, some believe and some would argue, uh, that had the most significant hand in the abolition of slavery across the world. And so uh, this is not Paul saying, yay, slavery. He is, though, talking about an accepted class system where, in this case, Paul was writing to people who were attending the same church with their slave master or with their slave at the same church. So this does not make any form of slavery right or morally just. We are not saying that, but it is important to understand the distinction and what Paul was actually talking about so that we don't project our understanding or experience or expression onto what Paul 
Paul's original audience were hearing in this letter. And for our own learning then, we can update our understanding into 2023 and realize that the closest matching imagery so that we can learn something from this passage that we have today would be our uh, class-based employer, employee, uh, or, or worker manager kind of working system. So we have also created this clear class-based system. Many of us submit our lives willingly as if we were a bond servant to a a manager or a boss. And so as we look to study and gain something from this perspective, we don't say, let's pretend that the Bible didn't just use the word slaves. We have to understand what was Paul actually saying in that context. And then we have to say, God, what would you say to me today in my context? without erasing the original meaning. That is very important work to do, and I'm so glad that our church is full of smart people who can understand and do that work. Now, with that, all of that said, we ask God, what would you say to me today? And let's just try very quickly. I think this is actually a very, it's a pretty easy work to do once we understand the context of what Paul is saying. As you think of yourself as an employee or maybe you're a manager, what might Paul say to you today? Listen again to the text. He says, slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And then he goes on to say, and masters or managers or bosses, treat your employees or masters treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So to slaves, or in our context, to employees, here's what he said. Obey your boss as if your boss was Jesus. We know that your boss is not Jesus. We know all the things that you thought of when I told you to think about your boss. We get that. But obey your boss as if you were obeying Jesus. Not faking it, being genuine, actually meaning it. And then, and then he goes on, he says, and be consistent in both your work and your attitude. Don't just say nice things to your boss when your boss can hear you. And don't just do your job when your boss is watching. Like all of us have had that. You remember your first job experience? You remember that first job experience? And you were learning whether, what you could get away with saying about your boss? before you realize that that was a terrible thing to do? Am I just talking about my first job experience? I was a janitor, my very first job. My boss's name was Otis, which is a fun name. And Otis was a great boss. And I was a terrible janitor. Someone made a noise as if they were like, yeah, I bet you were. I'm wounded by that. I resemble that remark. Uh, I remember there was nothing bad you could ever say about Otis, but, but I remember that whenever Otis wasn't around, he would have to find one of the older crew guys to work with us. Because Otis knew immediately when you hire high school students to do manual labor, the first thing that they do is try to find a job that they can do that no one can see so that they can be super lazy. It's just a, it's a part of the identity of every high school student, right? And so Otis would, uh, would team all of the young people up with all of the people on the crew with, with gray hair. And so for like every four high school kids, there was one guy who was like in his 40s or 50s, and you just had to work with that guy, and you would shadow him. And he called it like training so we could gain experience from the guys who knew how to do the job. But we knew better. It was babysitting. And over time, I had to learn in different jobs that I've had that you have to actually, you know, do your job when your boss isn't looking. As well as when he is. Because this is how we remain honest in our work. And this is what Paul is saying. In your work, don't just say nice things. Don't, don't, and, then when you're, and then when your boss is, is not looking, you can slack off and say whatever you want about them. Have a good attitude no matter what. And, and I love that, that, that Paul says that God takes this personally. In verse 8, he gives this idea. If you honor your leaders or your manager or your boss, etc., as if you were working for God, 
God will bless you in return. He goes, don't get this twisted. All of the good that you do, it's all going to come back to you. Now, we don't do karma in the Christian church. We don't, we don't, and we don't give to get in the Christian church. But scripture is very clear that people who obey the commands of God and honor their leaders are people who will be blessed. It's just the way that it works. Now, I don't know what that blessing will look like. I don't know if that comes in the form of, of more money or a bigger title and more responsibility and you get to have all of these fancy things. Or if it looks like when you get to heaven, God says, well done, my good and faithful servant, and that would be enough. But it will come back to you, either in this life or in the kingdom of heaven. And the second one is much better, by the way. So if, never, if, no one, if my boss never sees me do my job and have a good attitude, I need to do my job and have a good attitude about it. Why? Because I work for the Lord more than I work for my boss. And then to masters, or in our context, managers or bosses, Paul writes, treat your slaves the same way. Just as we are to honor our managers, our managers honor us. They're called, commanded to by God. Treat them like real people, not simply like tools to get a job done. And, and then he goes, he doubles down on this idea, and he says, don't threaten the people that work for you. Now, you can think of all the ways that Paul would say that, and all of the slaves in the room in the church in the early days would go, thank you, Paul. But employees, aren't you glad that God said that to your boss? Hey, don't threaten and managers, if you have people working under you, don't do that thing where you go, hey, I, don't know, I might have to write you up. Right? Leading with threats and punishment is not leadership. It's actually abusive, and it's counter to the kingdom of God. Instead, we lead with encouragement and love, which produces life. And then Paul masterfully levels the playing field in verse 9. He says, because you know that both their master, he's talking to managers, bosses, masters. He's actually, in this historic context, he's talking to people who own other human beings. Think about the implication of this. He says, their master and your master, it's the same person. He's in heaven, and he shows no favoritism. So what is he saying to the managers? Be like your master who doesn't show favoritism, but don't forget that at the end of the day, you're on the same playing field. This singular sentence is the thing that deconstructs slavery. This is the singular idea that tells us there is something bigger that identifies you than whether or not you think you have the rights to own a human being. This singular idea, you have the same master, is the reason that it is immoral to continue a system like slavery, which is why the Christian church was so effective in dismantling it. Because you come around and you go, we're all owned by God. You can't own somebody unless you're him. Right? But man, does that keep you humble if you're a manager. At least it should if you're paying attention. And treat people under your earthly hierarchy, not as people you get to dictate to, but as brothers and sisters in a kingdom hierarchy, have the same, having the same leader. Amen? And then all of this actually leads us to the third angle that, from which we, we want to study this passage, which is we want to look at this through the lens of the church. So we've, we've looked at family, at the workplace, and let's just quickly look at the lens of the church. I want you, this is important because I want to invite you to consider the implication of Paul addressing all four of these groups in this letter. Now, we, I've mentioned this before during this series, but if, if you haven't been with us in moments where I've said this, just understand that church in Paul's day didn't look like church in 2023. Like there was no live stream, there was no recording, you couldn't catch it later on the podcast, uh, and, and it, it just was, it was, it wasn't also in a building, it was in houses, and, and people would get together around meals, and what happened is that Paul wrote this letter that we now know as the letter of Ephesus, he wrote it to all of the Christian churches in Ephesus, and then it got passed around, in fact, he sent messengers and they would usually go around and like the leaders of the church would stand or, or one of Paul's messengers would stand. There would be a person who would pastorally read the letter to the church. And who's in the room? The members of the church. 
And not only was this not with like podcasts and live stream and the lighting and the big room and the comfy seats and all that, it was people cramped into a house, eating and doing life together with all of their kids. And so who's in the room when Paul has the letter of Ephesus read to the church of Ephesus? Whoever's standing up at reading it is looking out at a group of men and women of all ages, of multiple nationalities. Because Ephesus was a port city where people from all around the world were, were coming. People of all different expressions of cultural hierarchy were sitting in this room. Children were sitting in the room with their parents. When Paul says, fathers, don't stir up your children to anger, the kids are in the room to hear God call their parents on the mat. And when God says, masters, treat your servants, your slaves, like they're on the same level as you, the slaves are in the room. How much do you want to bet that there was at least one slave that when we got to that verse, that slave looks right at their master? Right? And how many masters heard this verse, this challenge, this command from God, and felt cut to the heart? Because they realized, I don't own anybody. And I wonder how many people were set free just as a result of Ephesians being read as a letter to the people. But isn't it profound, the implication that it has on the church? to think that everyone was in the room to hear this read? The leader of the church was under no instruction to say, let me gather all the kids and read the entire letter just to the kids. Or gather all of the people of lower class and read it just to them. And then we'll have a special conference just for the rich people. It was everybody in the room, all at the same time, each group present, children and slaves with their fathers and their mothers and their masters, all in the same church, all on the same level, some of them slaves sitting at a table where their master sits on the floor. There's actually a historic record of churches in the early era of the church, like in these days of the church, there's actually some historic record that would give evidence to say that in some local churches, elders of the church were slaves where their masters were just members. Isn't that wild and beautiful and a wonderful expression of the kingdom of God as we're all called to serve one another, to be mutually submitted? Everyone is here. Everyone heard Ephesians chapter 4. God gave gifts to people. Some apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? So that we can serve one another. And why? So that we can build the church. To what end? The unity of God in Christ. Not to the end that the masters would be better than the rulers. The end that we would all become like Jesus. So what does this say about God's expectation of the culture of our church? Or the, the, the church today? I think at the very least, it says that there should be no segregation of age or class in the church. That, that we, don't, we don't have any segregation of gender in the church. If you paid attention to last week's sermon, at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, there is no segregation of age or class or gender. Slaves are in the room to hear what Paul wrote to their masters because they were members of the same local church. All people are welcome under the condition that they are all students of Jesus and are all mutually submitted one to another. That's wild. I mean, even in 2023, that feels countercultural. Imagine what it must have been like for the original audience. And God says, yes, change your culture to match my kingdom. Right? Remember, the context of this portion of Ephesians is Paul is giving examples for what it would look like for people to live in life-giving, God-honoring, mutually submitted, and spirit-filled communities of believers. 
Paul reinforces this vision when he wrote Galatians chapter 3, when he says, for those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is now no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ. And just because it's important to clarify when things get twisted in the world, uh, it, it says Jew or Greek, slave or female, or slave or free, male and female. Uh, this does not mean that there's no males and no females and you get to just decide. It doesn't mean that. It's saying there's no class distinction. Right? Yes? <laughs> okay. This is what makes mutual submission work, that we understand that you can have distinct identity markers for who you are as a person. Like Jasmine and I are different people in a lot of different ways, but we're the same as children of God, right? Mutually submitted to one another. I serve as Jasmine's pastor, but Jasmine serves as a member of this local church just as much as I'm a member of this local church, and if Jasmine sees me in sin, I'm responsible to be mutually submitted to a person in my family who would call out my sin. And just because I'm the person with the microphone doesn't mean I'm exempt from that. Right? Or mutually submitted. Mutual submission in Jesus' church looks like children submitting to the authority of their parents, parents submitting to the needs of their children, slaves and workers submitting to the leadership of their managers and masters, masters and managers submitting to the humanity of their servants, and every person submitting to Christ above all. The family, the workplace, and the church should all be clear pictures of God's kingdom. This is what Paul is trying to say. In your household, in the places where you work, whether you're in charge or in submission, whatever it looks like, whatever your role, it looks like the kingdom. And where it doesn't, the Bible didn't get it wrong. We did. Right? So we're all children of the same Father in heaven. We're all expected to come under the authority of God which levels the cultural playing field. All people are sons and daughters of God if they have submitted their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if they haven't, they are loved like a son or a daughter of God who has gone astray and God loves them enough to send the church to bring them back into the family so they can enjoy the fruit of submission to God. This is how the kingdom works. This is how the kingdom grows. So all of this being said, a response to this kind of a message is not just simple. There's a lot of sermons that we preach. In fact, recently we've been kind of getting into a habit where at the end of a sermon we'll put up some uh, a slide on the screen and it'll be like some bullet points and some questions. You can kind of grab a picture of it and you can think as you go throughout the week. And I think that's wildly helpful. The problem is that I, I don't want to trick you into thinking that you can just agree to a an idea or a bullet point on a screen and then ha have this all figured out in your life. Uh, really what, what Paul wants us to understand, I think what God wants us to understand is that by partnership of the Holy Holy Spirit, this is going to take the rest of your life to live out. And you're never going to get it perfect, but you will get it more and more like Jesus if you partner with him and his church, right? And so I don't want to just give you a bunch of bullet points to, to respond. In fact, how we're going to wrap up um, um, this message in particular and how we should wrap up many messages like this is I simply want to read this passage to you one more time. And as I read this passage to you one more time, it's going to be up on the screen, and, and I, I just want to invite you, as you listen to the passage again, notice the people that come to mind. Pay attention to the conversations that you feel like you need to be having. After last Sunday's message, I had several people, husbands and wives alike, who came to me and said, man, after Sunday, I went and apologized to my spouse. That's great. Maybe you need to have a conversation with somebody in your family or in your place of work after a sermon like this. Do you owe anyone an apology? Is there a reconciliation that you need to make? Or is there a habit or an attitude that you need to change in your family or in the place where you work? And then I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then I'm going to pray a blessing. And then my charge over you is to, to go and be the light of the world, just like we charge our children. And so this is how we conclude our sermon today listening and paying attention to what God would say to us through his word. 
and what we need to go and do as a result. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have long life in the land. Fathers and mothers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. God, would you help us? Help us to build the kind of community that you would call us to build, the kind of family that you would call us to build. Help us as adults to know what it means for us to honor our parents. And help us as parents to love our children well. God, would you heal and mold our hearts in the places where we're broken so that the way we raise our children would be your ways and not our own. So that when they are older, they will not depart from your way. God, help us as employees to serve and honor our masters, our bosses and our managers, our overseers. Help us to honor them as if we were honoring you directly, whether they're looking or not. God, help us as managers to see and value and honor the humanity of the people we lead and to remember that we are no better than any other person. Help us to remember that we are all your children, your servants, your church. And as we serve one another in mutual submission, use our lives as a, as a sign that points to you as our King and our Lord and our Savior. And friends, as you live this way, I bless you that your children would be blessed and inherit a beautiful legacy from you. May the work of your hands be blessed and bring favor to those you serve. And through your life of mutual submission in your family, in your workplace, and in the church, may you be a blessing to those around you, pointing a clear and inspiring way to Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.